Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today's story is mind-blowing. I mean, we're talking about someone that literally was so committed and so, had such amazing conviction that he put himself through like years of eating just potatoes to be able to make it happen. I mean, talking about commitment. So I guess I don't want to wait any longer here. I want to welcome our guest today, Stefan Batori. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So originally born and raised in Poland in the late 70s. Obviously, at the time, communism was there and, and not a lot of money. So uh, how was life growing up in that specific area where you were? Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty strange world because you couldn't buy anything. Literally, when my when my parents took me out and we went shopping, like we, I remember standing in lines for hours to get some basic products. I mean, it was even, it was super difficult to buy toilet paper. Uh, it was super difficult to buy meat or, you know, gas, uh, to put gas in your car. So like everything was rationed. And uh, so I, I just remember empty shelves and, and long lines and my parents worrying about, you know, supporting uh, the family and making sure that we have something to eat, we have something to wear. So I guess what lesson do you think was there for you from perhaps the struggle? Because I think that something that, that is apparent there from your journey too is that you have been able to a certain degree to be okay with struggle, to embrace the struggle, that part of the journey. So I guess what, what lesson was there for you to learn? Well, I guess, you know, the, the, the biggest lesson was that when Poland turned over the communism and, and we started being a normal country, a democracy and, and, and having capitalism, uh, we got used to the convenience of, 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 of the capitalist world and, and life. But then when I, when I had those struggles, like I, it wasn't the end of the world for me. That was something that I was, I don't know if trained for is the right word, but I was like, okay, I, I, I can bear with that. I, you know, I, I, I can eat potatoes uh, and not worry about like not having meat and other produce and, and vegetables and, and cakes uh, and, and other treats because I've been through that uh, and I know I could have lived. So, so it didn't scare me, I guess. Got it. So then getting or developing 
this love for math. I mean, how how did you you know start getting into math and and all of this good stuff? I have always loved math. I just remember that as a kid, I I loved to solve puzzles and riddles, and it was hard to buy anything in Poland. And and I remember how happy I was like when I got a math book with like a lot of problems to solve and like that was like one of the best weeks in my life going through the book and solving those so i it was always out there and i don't know maybe maybe i kind of it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy that because that was one of the very few things that were available then i just enjoyed it and the more i enjoyed it the better i got at it and funny enough you go to university and then right after university you literally start getting into into this whole dot-com thing, which caught you really by surprise, especially the company that you were at the time in. So, so tell us about this journey. Well, it's a pretty crazy story because we, I, even while you know still studying math, I already worked for a couple of companies, and so I made friends, and there was eight of us working for for um, a company, and we didn't like the vision and the strategy that 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 company had at the time and we thought like hey let's start our own company and there was eight of us we started that in january 2000 and shortly after the the whole dot-com boom collapsed and the three guys that were supposed to run the business they left the company and there was five of us developers that were left and we didn't have a clue how to run a business we just liked the idea of being entrepreneurs without really understanding what that meant we trusted that those three guys would run the business and we would focus on building great products because this is what we loved. This is what we had passion for. When they left, we had a choice to shut down the company uh, or figure out how to run business, how to make sales, how to do marketing, how to do taxes. And the four other guys, they just looked up to me and they said, hey, Stefan, why don't you lead us? And I was naive enough to say yes. And that's what put me through two years of eating potatoes because we didn't make any money. We made 200,000 of debts. We should have declared bankruptcy. But I believe that we had a great team. We had great guys uh, that were capable of building great things. I just needed to figure out a way how to sell their work. That took me two years, but it paid off because after those initial two years, the company started growing very fast. And we doubled and tripled our revenues for 12 consecutive years. Deloitte ranked us as one of the top 50, fast, top 50 fastest growing companies in Central and Eastern, Eastern Europe. They also ranked us as one of the uh, top 500 fastest growing companies in Europe, Middle East and Africa. So that's how I learned how to run a business. Like I didn't go to business school. I, I learned that on the go and it was a very painful and and grueling experience but uh the best one i was able to get at the time and uh it, it ended up you know in i think that was 2011 or 2012 when i ipo'd the company on alternative market at warsaw stock exchange wow so what do you think was the turning point i mean at what point did you realize, hey, you know what? Today on the menu, there's going to be something, you know, besides potatoes. It was gradual because even when we started making money, I, you know, I saved money because I didn't know how sustainable that was and whether we would uh, be able to scale up and replicate that. 
but after two, two and a half years, we started getting more and more projects. And I started, we started having processes because the first two years, it was basically figuring out everything from scratch, how to sell, how to market the company, how to run projects, uh, how to build clients. So we made mistakes across the board, like in every single field, every single aspect of running a company. If you ask me, if there was a place where I didn't make any mistakes, I would say there isn't one. Like we ma- we made, I made mistakes in every single aspect of running a business. So I guess, uh, what would you say were the three biggest mistakes that you knew you would never make again? That's a hard question. I've made so many of them that I don't know. Well, the, one of the most painful mistakes was that I didn't know anything about taxes. And after we completed one of the biggest projects, I reinvested all the money into servers because it was all before, you know, the cloud and 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 all that stuff. So you actually, to host a website, you had to have a server and we invested money into servers. So I used all the available cash we had to invest into servers. And then I ended up paying taxes on profit that we made that month. And I didn't realize that we would have to pay the taxes because I didn't realize that the servers uh, need to be appreciated and you can't put you know, the whole value into your costs uh, in that given month. So that was something that I had no idea about and ended up you know, having a few stressful months being chased by IRS for not paying taxes because we didn't have money for that. Wow. So I guess, uh, I mean, amazing journey here. So you, you end up really turning the company around. You do the IPO. So what was the business model here? How, how, you, how were you guys making money? It was a software development house, and we did custom development for clients. We, we did it either on fixed uh, price basis or on time and material basis. So two very straightforward models, but... Uh, with fixed price projects, like we made a lot of mistakes. We didn't know how to assess risks. We didn't know how to make buffers. Uh, so we, we we did a lot of projects with losses on them. So so the business model itself was pretty simple, but uh, I didn't have anybody to teach me how to do it. So I guess that's another lesson learned that after that experience, I learned to reach out to people uh, who were successful and who were you know, a few steps ahead of me, how they got there. So this way I wouldn't have to learn everything on my own mistakes. You know, that's interesting that you say that because in Europe, you know, in the U.S., you know, that's normal. You can reach out to anyone and and people, you know, are willing to really pick up the phone and help you out. But in Europe, at least in Spain, where I'm from, it's not easy because there's all types of gatekeepers, the executive assistant, you know, that's someone to pass you through. And and it's very hard to to be able to get that type of help or or it's not very well viewed to ask for help so so how was that for you it was the same in poland maybe even to, uh, to a bigger extent than in spain because of you know our experience with communism because when you lived under communism like you had to be careful who you uh, talk to you have to be careful who you share your secrets or or knowledge with because you never knew who was the secret police and how they would you know use the information you shared with them against you so so in our mentality and culture i didn't know how to ask for help because i was not taught to ask for help 
Like I never saw my parents doing it. I never saw anybody doing it. So it, it didn't even cross my mind to ask for help. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't even about the gatekeepers and people not willing to share the information. I kind of self, I, I, I limited myself and I even didn't try asking for help for the first couple of years. Wow. So then in this case, I mean, incredible turning point, you end up doing the IPO of the company. Uh, and then what happens next? I learned uh, another lesson that, you know, when you are in a service business, when you, when you are in business of selling time to double or triple your revenues, you have to double or triple your headcount. And that was not scalable. So I started thinking, like, how do I grow the company without doubling the headcount? And that's when I figured out that there are other different business models uh, like licensing or recurring revenue or marketplaces where you can actually grow the company without growing the team and have less complexity uh, and you don't have to rely so heavily on recruiting so many people uh, to, to grow the company. So I started figuring out what would step, what would be my next move. And I came up with that idea of launching a taxi hail app. I didn't know about Uber back then. I saw a similar project operating in Germany. Well, that's a that's a great idea. There wasn't anything like that in Poland or any other European country at that time. And I, I thought, why don't we launch that in Poland? And uh, and that's how iTaxi was born, the, the first taxi hailing up in Central Europe. And obviously... This is, I mean, one, one of the things that, that is amazing is that you've done spin-off after spin-off. So I guess, you know, when you're doing a spin-off, right? So for example, like, like what we're discussing here, what, how, do you, how do you go about doing it successfully? Because I guess it's not that easy to completely detach that new entity from, from the parent, you know, so fast and so quick. No? So what does that process look like and, and how do you make it smooth? I guess in my case, it was pretty easy to detach it from the parents. So I just geofenced a team that focused on, on building that app. And six months later, we, we also created a separate entity and we moved all the assets and the team into that new entity. I guess that was serendipity. Back then, I didn't realize uh, that you know having spin-offs might have any challenges. And I was pretty successful with the first one. So later on when i was you know making uh my next spin-offs i kind of replicated that model i had a blueprint that worked for me so so i did exactly the same thing with other spin-offs got it and obviously one of your latest spin-offs you know was what led to really creating booksy but i find that the story of 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 really the creation of booksy and and how that came about the origins is, is pretty mind-blowing. So that comes from you running marathons in the Sahara Desert. I mean, how crazy is that? Uh, yeah, that's a really, really crazy and funny story. So after eating potatoes for two years, I, you know, once I could afford to eat meat and pasta and ice cream, I started gaining weight. And at some point, I, I was almost a 100 kilo guy. Uh, 100 kilo guy. And I didn't want to cross the 100K mark. So uh, to make long story short, I started running. 
And once I got into running, I even didn't realize how much I would have enjoyed it. And I started signing up for 5K and take 10K races. And the more I worked out and the more I competed, the more I liked it. And then I signed up for my first half marathon and then a marathon and then a 100K race. And I guess 12 months into running and I signed up for Marathon de Sable, which is considered the toughest foot race on earth. It's six back-to-back marathons across Sahara in self-sufficiency formula. So you have to carry a backpack with all the food and supplies and everything you need to survive a week in a desert. Uh, They only provide you with water because it's not feasible to carry that much water with you uh, for a week. So um, going back to Booksy, when I signed up for for Marathon de Sable and I started ramping up my mileage, to get ready for the race, I started having some aches and pains in my legs and I had to see a physiotherapist. And it struck me that all the people that work with their hands, whether they give somebody a massage or they paint nails or they care or they color it or they do makeups or brows or lashes, they basically can't take phone calls when they are busy working. And when they are done with their work, they want to go back home and spend time with their families and friends and not answer the phone calls. So I learned that there is a pain point and I started thinking how to solve it and how to take the hassle out of the booking process. Wow. Now, you know, it's interesting how incredibly well you've been able to embrace struggle. And it's incredible, like, you are done with potatoes and then you're like, you know what, I'm now going to go into the Sahara and run a marathon. It's, it's, it's super cool here, the, the, the similarities as well between perhaps building a startup and being in the desert, because especially when you're not there yet, perhaps on the product market fit, you're testing, it's a trial and error. It's like you raise your seed round. That is like you go through the desert until you're able to find the water and then everything you know starts a... Uh, going in the right direction, I guess you know. How do you think that 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 experience, or you dealing with being in the desert and and all of that? How do you think that that's also applied to that mentality to perhaps the building something from nothing and and really finding that switch in that room where everything is dark and you need to find that switch to get out of the room and survive. Um, that's a great question. And actually, there is a lot of similarities in long distance running and running a business because a lot of people get scared and they are not even willing to put their shoes on when they think about running 5 or 10K, not even mentioning a marathon. It just scares people. So they don't even make the first step. And I think running, the most important thing is to put your shoes on and get out of home and make this first step. And the same thing is true about business. And people also uh, give up halfway. A a lot of people also actually give up, you know, when the success is around the corner, they just don't see it coming. So they just give up literally, you know, the last mile before they succeed. And because of that, they fail. And what I learned about running and running a business is that on one hand, you need to have this big, big, hairy, ambitious goal and kind of know what's the direction you are going or what's the direction you are running, but at the same time, break it down into smaller pieces 
break it down into like small achievable pieces. So when I was running in the Sahara and I felt like, oh, I can't make it. I still have like 50K to go. Instead of thinking about how difficult and scary that thought was, I focused on like, okay, I, I see this palm tree or I see this rock or I see that hill. So I'll get there and then I'll figure out what my next steps are. So, so this is where I see a lot of similarities in running a business and, and running long distance that you, you need to balance between this uh, long-term perspective and short-term perspective. Like if you are too obsessed about short-term, you, you miss on the bigger vision. If you are too obsessed on the big vision, on, on the big picture, then you fail to execute in your day-to-day -day life and operations. Uh, so, so you have to do both and kind of alternate between those both long-term vision and, and day-to-day -day work. And when, whenever you feel like you can't do it and, and the goal seems to be so far away, just focus on, on doing the next step and somehow, you know, the next step will be easier. Like, you know, every step gets you closer to the finish line and a lot of people, and I've seen that when racing both in, in Sahara or, or even regular races, a lot of people just, you know, at some point when they feel they are tired, they just stop and they sit down, but it doesn't get them any closer to the finish line. So my, my attitude has always been like, even if I cannot run, then I, I slow down. If I, if, if I cannot jog, then I still walk because even if I'm not walking or running at the exact pace I was aiming at, those steps that I'm making, they are getting me closer to the finish line and stopping doesn't get me any closer to the finish line. So I apply the same with business. Even if we are not making enough progress, the most important thing is about learning something every single day and making small progress, even if it's not what we uh, have planned for, even if it's smaller, then you are still making progress. That's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting because probably people right now are listening to us and they're probably in the comfort of their homes. But, I mean, we're talking about running through the Sahara Desert. I mean, I've seen those pictures, crazy blisters on the foot, massive pain, you know, before you cross the, the finish line. So, I mean, it's, a, it's unbelievable what you put yourself through. How many times have you done that? I've done that three times so far. The first time I signed up just to see if I could do that. The second time I signed up uh, with a goal of finishing in the top uh, 100 out of 1,300 people participating, and, and I succeeded. And then the third time I wanted to finish in the elite top 50, and I finished 43rd. And I'm still thinking about going back and finishing in the top 30 or 25 now, but I have too much on my plate and I'm focusing on work now. But but hopefully one day I will be able to to go back and finish it the fourth time. Wow. So then let's talk about Booksy. So obviously Booksy is, is definitely the result of of you really going through through this through these races and and making it happen. So so Booksy now, uh, let's talk about this. So so then you come up with the concept, you come up with the idea, and then what do you do to bring it to life? Well, we did two things. Uh, we started developing it. We started designing the product, developing it. And in order to do that, we started talking with our potential clients, with 
uh, hair salons, with barber shops, with with hair and beauty places, and and uh, owners and managers and stylists who worked there. Uh, but the second thing that we did, and now when I think about that, it was pretty crazy. But back then, it didn't seem like a crazy idea. We just felt felt a very strong urge to do that. We uh, all those conversations we started having them in the U.S., not in Poland, because we felt that we wanted to build a global company and we wanted to validate that idea in the U.S., which is the most competitive market in the world. And we thought, like, if we can succeed in the U.S., we can succeed anywhere. Uh, so we just flew over to the U.S. with my partner Conrad and we started meeting with with our potential clients and getting their feedback and and learning how the business uh industry works how how the beauty uh, i mean how the beauty industry works uh how they operate to make sure that we design a product that is a great fit for them so then what were some of the early days like uh getting a lot of feedback understanding how they run their business what they their challenges were and we spent a lot of time with the developers and and our designers putting that those insights into into a product into design and then we spent a lot of time uh selling to the first clients and onboarding them ourselves so we could learn from that and we could improve on the product and before we hired a team before we hired sales people and marketing people we wanted to make sure that we had product market fit and we understood who our clients were, so we could onboard uh, all the new people that would join the company. So, so these were the, the first few months, maybe even a year, when Conrad and I practically ran the business and were hands-on, and we did sales and marketing and, and everything on our own. So then, what is, for the people listening, what is the business model? What ended up being the business model of Booksy? Uh, the business model is pretty simple. We charge uh, subscri monthly subscription. So basically, this is a SaaS business. We offer uh, a great tool for service providers to manage their calendar and manage their clients. So their clients can book with them 24 hours, seven days a week online, and they can just focus on doing what they love, on cutting hair or making people feel pretty and and making people feel taken care of and we take the hassle out of the uh process and we charge them flat monthly fee uh it's 30 dollars for independent contractors so it's basically a dollar a day okay so then in this case now you were running booksy and all of a sudden the opportunity of coming to the US shows up and Obviously, you could have built a really big business in in there in Poland, but but you decided to to go once again through the struggle of crossing the Atlantic. So so why did you do that, and and how was that experience for you guys? So we wanted to make sure that we validate the idea in the most competitive market because we wanted to build a global company, and you can always build a global company and and start in your home market, which is always the easiest. But at the same time, uh, like Poland is probably not the best blueprint when you want to roll out in Western Europe, in, in North America, or even in Asia. Uh, there are so, so many differences, cultural differences, uh, 
sometimes business differences. So, so we thought that US is the best market to validate it. It's the most diversified market. And if we can succeed in this market, then we can take Booksy uh, to other markets and be successful. And it worked for us because today US is our biggest market. It's, it's 50% of our business, but we also have presence in the UK, in Spain, um, in Mexico, in Brazil, in South Africa, and obviously Poland. But Poland was the second market that we launched, and we actually translated the app from English to Polish. So, so we kind of treated Poland as uh, not as a home market, but as a market where we localized the app to launch it in. So then what were some of the biggest hurdles of, of coming to a place like the U.S.? Because there's probably a lot of founders right now that are listening to us from outside of the U.S. and thinking about making the jump and maybe because they want to raise money, because they see that it's a great place to ramp up their operation. So what were some of those obstacles that you encountered? Hiring people, I guess that was the biggest obstacle because we didn't know anything about the U.S. Uh, market from like employment point of view. We didn't know how to source talent. We didn't know what were competitive rates. We didn't know what would be the best place to set up an office. Um, we didn't know um, uh, how to screen people, what are, you know, like how to retain them. So so these were all the obstacles we've been um, struggling with, especially in the first two or three years. Um, until we established a really strong presence. And right now we have a really strong U.S. team and brand awareness and also uh, getting better employer branding and getting really amazing candidates right now. But the first two or three years, uh, this is where we struggled the most. And how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised almost $120 million, uh, up to date with 70 million in the latest round in November last year. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting because also being from Europe, I thought and I saw that fundraising in the U.S. is quite different from maybe like the investor mentality in Europe. So so what did you find different, especially when you were out there and perhaps doing Sun Hill Road and, and knocking on those doors and how people were reacting to you, towards you guys? I guess the biggest difference is that the ecosystem in the US was, is, is developed and is at least a few years, if not a decade or two ahead of some of the other ecosystems around the world. And everything is structured and every, like you have templates for everything. So you don't need to spend days or weeks negotiating contracts. Like basically uh, everything is run on those templates. VCs know them. Startups know them, so you just plug in the numbers, you just plug in, you know, some of the, you know, most important terms, and and that's it. Uh, in Europe, like everything, is negotiated from scratch, so you waste a lot of time working with lawyers, paying them fees, and focusing on that instead of uh, focusing on building your business. So, so that's something that I I found um, the biggest difference or the first difference that I noticed. The second one, which now seems pretty obvious, but back then I, I hated it. A lot of VCs, they like to uh, invest into uh, founders that have credibility. And I had zero credibility in the US. I still don't know if I have enough, but so having said that, 
if you graduated from Stanford or Harvard, or if you worked at Google or Facebook, or if you know they know somebody who knows you, who can vouch for you, that helps with the fundraising a lot. And at first I didn't understand it and I didn't know why it was so important. And uh, so, so I guess I spent, I should have spent more time on building relationships, on, on uh, building my credibility because it didn't mean anything that I was successful in Poland. Uh, when I moved in here three years ago, I was uh, literally nobody with no credentials. Wow. I mean, was it um, like on the way that you were perhaps like building the relationships and And I'll, I'll just share my, my story and maybe, you know, like there's something there, you know, on your end, you know, in the same way, which is when I came to the U.S. Uh, in Spain, you know, you had to be friends because your parents were friends or or some kind of uh, stuff like that here in the U.S. I mean, in New York, I remember I would go to a dinner, I'll meet someone and then the next day I could I could be in a different dinner with all the friends of that individual and not a problem. So so how was that networking you know process for you and building those relationships? Well, it was difficult because I had neglected it. I didn't realize the importance of the process, so uh, I didn't I didn't spend enough time on on doing that. And like I had almost zero networking here, and I still don't have a uh, big network. I I was lucky to have Zach Failius invest into Booksy, and and then a couple uh, early stage investors and and angels, and and at some point, you know, that made. Uh, the difference they started helping me out, but you know until you know I got somebody who who invested into Booksy, who understood our business model, who who got to know me, like it was super difficult. Got it. So then, uh, shifting gears here, let's talk about Booksy a little bit more. Uh, what 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 do you guys have in store? I mean, if you had to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Booksy is fully realized, what does that world look like? Uh, we want to make appointments easy for anybody anywhere. So if you wake up and that vision is fully realized, then you can book, no matter where you wake up, you can book your uh, haircut appointment with Booksy. You can book maybe your doctor appointment. You can book your car workshop appointment with Booksy. So so we we envision Booksy as as you know the booking app. That's amazing. You know one one of the things that that again is interesting here is how how incredibly well you've always dealt with the ups and downs of during your journey and, and also in your life. No and and one thing that definitely comes to mind is is COVID. You know COVID has been um a terrible year for for everyone. For everyone. I mean, full of uncertainty, full of, you know, people getting sick, loved ones, you know, having to go through it too. Uh, and, and also the businesses, you know, seeing people suffer. I think that in your guys' case too, it was a little bit bumpy. So, so how was that for you? How, how did you deal with, with, with that, you know, perhaps, you know, downturn of events? Um, it was very difficult. I think that was the most difficult experience in my, in my professional career because We had had a successful company growing an amazing team. And when COVID hit and markets went into lockdown, we faced a possibility of going out of business in the next few months because people stopped using Booksy. They were not able, like they were not booking their haircuts. Salons uh, stopped paying us subscription because they wanted to save money. And 
we had to lay off over half of our team. So that was a very sad moment and that was a very difficult decision. And uh, there was a, a lot of volatility. There was a lot of, it was very unclear at that time if we were making the right decision, how long the lockdowns would last, whether it, it had to be at that scale. Uh, so, so there was a lot of stress and it was a very difficult and sad moment. It was the hardest moment my professional career. And then three months later, when markets reopened, at first I, I, I had thought that, you know, I made the wrong decision because we assumed that lockdowns would last longer and there would be second and third waves of lockdowns. But we saw surge in signups and our numbers and sales went through the roof in May, June, July, like it went through the roof. So then I, I had thought like, you know, I heard a lot of people laying them off and our business is thriving again. Uh, and, and, and I had thought it, it was a, you know, a bad decision. It was a bad move, but then some markets started going into lockdowns again. So then it proved to be a good decision after all. I mean, good for the company because we were already prepared and, and we didn't have to go through another round of layoffs. So. So that was a very difficult year with a lot of ups and downs, uh, which ended really well for us because we ended up the year uh, merging with one of our biggest competitors, Versum, and raising a 70 million round. So in the hindsight, you know, I, I, if you asked me last year in February, if I was expecting all of that happened, I, I would tell you that, you know, that was a crazy question because... Uh, what we've went through last year, it's more than I went through in the previous 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Wow. That's really unbelievable. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, now looking back, I mean, what a, what a remarkable journey. You know, there's one question that I typically ask the guests on, that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and you were able to speak with, with that younger self, with perhaps, you know, that younger self that was thinking about, you know, that moment where you were alone, the partners had left, you needed to take the reins, really understand that you had a business to build or maybe a, even a business that you were going to launch. If you were able to go back and tell that younger Stefan one piece of advice before launching a business or really leading a business, what would that be and why knowing what you know now? Seek out for help, uh, ask questions because it wouldn't, it didn't have to be that difficult and and so much struggle if i had done that i think that that's the number one thing i would have done back then i love it and stefan for the people that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi email me at stefan at batari.pl so my first name at my last name dot pl for poland i'll reply i mean maybe not immediately but uh, i'll reply to everybody who emails me Amazing. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, for great questions. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.